Good morning. Is it cold enough out there for you? My sister lives in Michigan, and, and we, we called her, and we actually are colder last night here than they were in Michigan last night. Now, something seems fundamentally flawed with that. Doesn't it? Yeah. It's colder than Anchorage, Alaska, he said. There's something is fundamentally flawed with that. Yeah. Let's, let's begin class of prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. And as we explore your word today, we would especially pray that your angels and spirit be with us, that we can have discernment and we can keep a loving and open heart to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number four in our quarterly, The Fruits of the Spirit. And the lesson title this week is The Fruit of the Spirit is Peace. And if somebody would read for us the memory text, and then immediately the first paragraph right after the memory text. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. To the champion of peace, Paul wrote, quote, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Greek word translated endeavoring is an imperative, excluding any passivity, any, quote, wait and see attitude. We must be proactive. If we fight and bicker in our homes, if we fall into factions of the church, if we refuse to love and honor others, then we are denying the peace of God in Jesus Christ, which he established on the cross. First question. Do you think these the, the, the peace that Christ was referring to is being properly applied in that first paragraph? Or do you think that's what he was referring to, this peace and, and not having bickering and fighting? Is that what Christ was saying when he said, my peace I leave with you? Is that what he was talking about? Or is he talking about something else? More like peace of mind. More like peace of mind, you said. Peace of heart. How about peace with God? We're enmity with God, and now he leaves us peace with God, with peace in heart and mind. Because as I read this first paragraph, where they're applying it, as you're saying, to homes and church and so forth like that, which, which certainly we want to have peace there, I, I thought of Christ's Statement in Matthew chapter 10, 34 through 40. And these are Christ's words speaking. Also, he, he said, peace I leave with you, our memory text. But he also said these words. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, does that sound like he's talking about peace in our homes? It didn't sound like peace in the home to me when he's saying I'm bringing a sword to turn the, the family members against each other. In heaven, do you think that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are having their heart peace? Peace, for their desire to have peace with their creation. Did God achieve peace with Lucifer? Why did he not achieve peace? It says there was war in heaven. Why did God, who is the infinite God, who has as his heart desire to have peace with Lucifer, why did he not achieve peace with Lucifer? Reconciliation takes two people. Oh, she says reconciliation takes two people. So why, what was the source of the ongoing war or conflict in heaven? Was it originating in God? And what was Satan doing that was causing conflict or war in heaven? Exercising his free will to rebel. Exercising his free will to rebel, and in what he was doing, he was misrepresenting God. Now, if, if God is being misrepresented in heaven by Lucifer, and God has a heart of, for peace... Can God go along with that? Should he just say, that's okay, misrepresent me, I won't mind? Hmm. When Jesus said, I've come to bring a sword, I do not think I've come to bring peace, I've come to bring a sword. Which sword was he talking about? The sword of the word, or the sword of truth. Yeah, it's the sword of truth which divides bone from marrow and so forth. So Christ came to bring us a sword of truth that will cause separation, separation from those who are holding to Satan's methods or lies or distortions from those who love truth and want to follow truth wherever it leads, there will be a dividing happening, won't there? 
Is that a bad thing? Is it a bad thing to leave error and to leave darkness and to leave selfishness and to leave worldliness and follow godliness and truth and love? Is that a bad thing? How about if you have family members who don't want to follow love and truth? Should we stick with our family members or should we still follow love and truth and follow God? Do you see what Christ is talking about when he says, I've come to bring a sword? To sever us, to cut us away from this world, to cut us away from the things of this world. When we present the sword of truth, when we wield the sword of truth in love as the Holy Spirit enables us, does everyone who is in error respond positively to the sword of truth? No. No. Well, guys, I have some sad news. As I was preparing my lesson this week, going over these very questions in my mind, I found out a member of our church here in Collegedale has taken it upon himself to attack our class very viciously. He wrote a letter to the review to another ministry which has been supporting our class. He said he was going to send one to our church board here complaining about this class and alleging that we teach heresy and requesting that the class be shut down and my book be removed from sales at the various sites. He also put a rant on Amazon.com misrepresenting my book. Now, question. When people go on these rants in such a way that they twist the truth or they misrepresent the facts, can such twisting and misrepresenting the facts have impact or do people just ignore it? Look what happened in heaven. Did Lucifer have any truth at all in heaven? No. He was twisting and misrepresenting and a third of the end of the whole great controversy because of this type of behavior. So, as a class, how should we respond? How can we obtain peace? Talking about peace in our lesson. How can we obtain peace with someone who practices such methods? And I want you to think about that as we go through today. Think about how can we reach out and obtain peace? How could God obtain peace with Lucifer? So, our first step, when somebody makes allegations against us, our first step hear what they say, try to understand their concerns, and my position is to step back and examine the evidences of their concerns and see if there's any weight to them. And so, uh, Ellen White says in Councils to Writers, page 35, there is no excuse for anyone taking the position that there's no more truth to be revealed and that all of our expositions are of Scripture without error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truths for many years by our people is not proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine loses anything by close investigation. So do we have to fear anything about investigating and inquiring when somebody makes allegations? We can step back and say, because, I mean, isn't our hearts, don't we want to have hearts that pursue truth? We're finite. We, may, we, we, we don't claim we have all knowledge. We might have errors in our thinking. If somebody can point those out to us, well, praise God. Let's get rid of those. Let's move forward in truth. So we have nothing to fear if somebody makes allegations to step back and look at God's word and evidence and see if there's something that we haven't quite understood properly. So I think we should step back and do that. So I'm going to read to you uh, a section of this letter. It's fairly long. I've, I've, I've truncated it so you can kind of get the high points of what, what was said. It says, I'm a member of the College of SDA Church here in Tennessee. I have deep concern that I want to share with you regarding one of the books your store is selling. The book titled, Could It Be This Simple? and is written by Tim Jennings. My concern is regarding what Jennings teaches in his book, which are critically significant doctrinal positions that he teaches quite openly in a Sabbath school class that he currently runs at my church. Jennings' personal theology is essential moral influence theory. In accordance with his theological foundations, he believes that sinners do not need forgiveness from sins, that the Ten Commandments are a dim reflection or shadow or metaphor. Both of these positions are clearly taught in this book and are diametrically opposed to the positions held by the vast majority of Christendom. More importantly, they are contrary to what the Bible teaches and eviscerates the gospel of Jesus Christ. He confuses God's offer of forgiveness to the unrepentant sinner with the repentant sinner's accept of God's offering, forgiveness. This fundamental misunderstanding of the process of forgiveness is evident throughout this chapter. Later in the chapter, he contradicts himself by stating that salvation requires forgiveness from God and repentance on part of the sinner. This statement contains a partial truth, salvation is possible because of God's forgiveness, and an outright error that salvation requires repentance on the part of the sinner. To say that repentance is required for salvation is a dangerous error that creates a salvation by works theology. Jennings clearly teaches that the Ten Commandments written in in stone by the very hand of God are far less than perfect aids to those seeking God's truth. He refers to them numerous times as a dim reflection. He states that just studying the Ten Commandments will never reveal the fullness of God's law. 
Reading it in stone, he says, will never reveal its true nature. This is a deliberate and full-force denigration of the usefulness, completeness, purity, holiness, and sufficiency of God's law. What do the psalmists and other Bible writers say about God's law? They describe it in ways that are as different from how Jennings describes it as night is from day. He belittles God's law because this is necessary in order to be consistent with his moral influence theology, specifically the belief that there is no penalty for breaking God's law. Here Jennings is belittling the very act of God of writing with his own fingers the commandments in stone. In these paragraphs, he claims that the Ten Commandments are only a transcript. By this, he suggests they are not the real thing, but some secondary, ultimately ineffectual copy of the real thing. Jennings does not stop here, however. He goes on to claim that the only way to fully understand God's law is to see it at work in living flesh, in an intelligent living being. All his Sabbath school classes are recorded and posted on the website. In the interest of conserving time, if you listen to podcast 11, The Benefits of Christ's Atoning Sacrifice, you'll get a very clear picture of the core teaching of this fundamental issue. Within the first five minutes or so of the podcast, you will hear a class member who often teaches the class when Jennings is not able to. I wonder who that is, Russell. (laughs) (laughs) Laughing at the idea that Christ's mediating on our behalf before the Father should comfort Christians. Jennings does nothing to counteract this laughter for his simple reason, that is, that what the man who is laughing is saying is exactly what Jennings is teaching. They are in perfect agreement. Within those first few minutes, you will hear other significant distortions regarding forgiveness of sin, salvation, justification, sanctification, and this podcast as a whole clearly delineates moral influence theory. So, the allegations against us. God's law is not imposed, that we believe that God's law is not imposed. That the Ten Commandments are a shadow or metaphor or dim reflection of God's real law. That we deny that the sinner needs to be forgiven forgiven by God. That we teach a salvation by works theology. That Christ did not pay a penalty for our sins at Calvary. That there is no penalty for the acts of sin. That we teach moral influence theory. Moral influence theory basically teaches this. That the purpose of Christ's death was to reveal God's good, loving character in order to influence us with that truth morally so then we would live moral lives and love God. And that was its only purpose, to influence us with moral truth. That's the moral influence theory. And it had no other purpose or accomplishments beyond the revelation of truth. That God is not our mediator. That God does not judge us, we judge ourselves in the final judgment. All of these were specifically delineated as what we teach. By the way, the review who got the letter outlining these things sent me back that that they felt that there was no merit or basis, and they just said, don't worry about it. The other ministry who got this letter took my book off their shelves before they actually took the time to talk with me to find out what I actually believe. We have some email dialogue going on right now, so they are open to discussing and seeing if, in fact, this is, is, is legitimate or not. So, let's look at this in light of God's word. Yes. Had this individual ever come to you? We never spoke in person, and he never made these allegations to me directly. We had about four email exchanges where he seemed to be inquiring about what we were teaching, um, but he never actually said he had these objections. So it seems to me that the email exchanges were uh, part of his attempt to prove that that we were in these in, 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 teaching these ideas rather than because he never said any of this in, in the emails to me. He said that he came to class. I never remember seeing him or meeting him here. But he says that, you know he's obviously a member of the church, and I'm not going to say who it is because I'm, it's not our place to do that. I mean, he's got concerns. Hopefully, uh, maybe he'll listen to this podcast and we can address all of his concerns. So let's look at it. God's law. What would you say as a class, as far as what we teach in here regarding God's law? Starting is God's law imposed, created, enacted? Or something else? Something else. How do we know? What evidence do we have? Let's not just have our opinion. Let's, let's look for some evidence. What is God's law? Scripture. Reflection of his character. Okay, the reflection of his character. But what's some scriptures? What actually is it? If you would say, somebody come up to you, know nothing about Christianity, you say, does God have a law? Well, sure. What is it? The law of love. Any scripture for that? Romans 13.10. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5.14, the entire law summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Are the commandments, the ten commandments, laws the law of love? Or is it something else? When we think about the law of love, where does the law of love originate? Is it something God created? 
God himself is love. So let's use our imagination for a moment and travel backwards in time before we were born. And before our parents and great-grandparents, even before Adam and Eve was born, back before the earth was created. And in Job chapter 38, it says that the sons of God sang together at the foundations of the earth. So there was a time before any humans were in existence and God and the angels were in existence. If we go back before that, before God made the angels, before God made space and time and matter, if we go back before any creation at all, what do we find in the pre-existent universe? God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Pre-existent. At that state, before God starts to create, was the law of love in existence? Then was it created? No. It's an, it emanates, it originates in God himself. God is love. So when God went to create, what basis was God creating upon? What, what would be the foundational law or principle upon which God would create everything? Would it not be harmony with his own nature? Which is love. So... The law of love is the foundation, the principle, the template, the design protocols upon which everything God creates is made. So let's look at some inspired writings or some writings from one of the founders of our church. This is out of Christ Object Lessons 258. In living for self, he has rejected the divine law, which would have flown out in mercy to his fellow men. Thus he has rejected life, for God is love, and love is life. Hmm. Great Controversy 493. Our only definition of sin is that given in the word of God. It is transgression of the law. What law do you think? What do you think she'll say? It is breaking the commandments? That's what she says. It's transgression of the law. It is an outworking of the principle at war with the great law of love, which is the foundation of the divine government. This is 493, uh, a paragraph down from that one in Great Controversy. The law of love being the foundation of the government of God, the happiness of all created beings depend upon their perfect accord with his great principles of righteousness. Does this sound like an imposition? Something that was enacted? Something that was legislated? Something that, that a powerful uh, ruler has, has commanded that we obey? There are more in here that go on to say the same thing. I don't necessarily have to read all those to you. But what difference does it make? If we believe that God created and enacted a law that he imposes upon his beings, then what happens if that law is broken? He has to impose penalties in order to be just. He has to impose penalties. If, on the other hand, the law is the law of love, which is the foundation of the divine government, it is the principle that all life is designed to operate upon, and deviations deviate from that principle, then what happens? If life is based on it and you step out from harmony with it, what happens? And the consequences are? The wages of sin. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Do you see a difference? It makes a huge difference. I'm going to tell you, everything that we're going to talk about has its foundation in whether you believe God's law is something that he as the powerful ruler imposes and therefore imposes penalties, or whether you believe it's something that emanates from his being and it's the design template for all life. You, you pick one or two of those, you pick one of the, of the two, and you end up going down two different paths with two different gods, with two different problems of sin, with two different solutions for sin, with two different atonement models. Everything stems from how you see God's law. Is it the law of love, which originates in his heart and character that he designed everything to run upon? Or is it something he imposes upon creation and holds them and hears their behavior to it? Everything else stems from that. And there's a lot more in the notes for who wants to get a lot more um, statements that say the same thing. But doesn't he say that love Absolutely. Because what is love? Is it something that is imposed? If, if, if you say, if you love health, you will eat healthy, eat healthy foods, not smoke, not drink. Isn't that true? Does that mean if you don't love health and you eat all types of toxic foods and smoke and drink, that you will be externally punished by the rulers of the land or by God himself? You decide to smoke, drink, do drugs because you don't love health. Will God have to punish you? Will there be punishment? Yes, there'll be punishment. What is the punishment? Yes, absolutely. So yes, absolutely, we love God, we're going to keep his commandments, because that is the only rule of life for the universe. Maybe I should read a couple more of these statements. Christ came to the world with the accumulated love of eternity. Sweeping away the exactions which had encumbered the law of God, he showed that the law is a law of love, an expression of the divine goodness. 
He showed that in obedience to its principles is involved the happiness of mankind. And with it, the stability, the very foundation, the framework of, of human society. Again, with, with this law is bound the happiness of mankind. This is like the laws of health is, is bound up the happiness or health of mankind. That was, by the way, Southern Watchman, April 23, 1907. And this is our pages 20, page 21. By turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it is the glory of God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him who sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. All things Christ received from God, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son it returns in praise and joy of service, the tide of love to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence, the circle of giving, beneficence, is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. Do we see this as a law, principle upon life, which is based, it's not imposed, it's not enacted, yes? I'd like to make a brief comment about that word punishment and what I perceive as a consequence. Using the symbolism of if you love life, I talked to a guard yesterday at a medical university, and he said to me, man, my cholesterol was way, way, way up there. And all my doc told me just to quit. He said, man, you're killing yourself. Just stop eating that bacon. He said, I quit eating bacon. And boy, my cholesterol's perfect. I'm going to be great. He would have suffered the consequence of not loving health, even though he loved health, and he was ignorant of the laws of health. So I think rather than the word punishment, a consequence is the more appropriate term because the law, therefore, is just like the doctor telling him, don't do this. And he goes, oh, okay, I'll do what you said. And he benefits from... I like it. Now, when we think about the law in this way, is the law compromising or is it uncompromising? It's completely uncompromising. There is no changing the law. You can't. It's very, very rigid in that sense. Life can only exist in perfect accord with the law of love. There's no doing away with the law. And there's no doing away with the law. There's no legislating away the law. There's no appeasing the law. So, allegation number one, we teach the law of God is not imposed or created. Yes, we do. Why? Because it wasn't. Because it's an expression of the divine goodness. It's an expression of God's heart and character. It's the principle that all life is created to operate upon. And the inspired record demonstrates that. What about the allegation that we teach the Ten Commandments are a shadow or a metaphor or a dim reflection of the law of love? Well, let's be clear. The Ten Commandments are not a shadow or metaphor. They are an expression of the law of love. However... They are a distilled version, particularly written for human need. And everybody know the evidence for that? Inspired evidence for that? Did the angels in heaven need a written law about sins being passed down from the third and fourth generations? No. no. Our commandments have that in it. Did they need a law to honor their mothers and fathers? No. Did they need a law not to commit adultery? No. no. See, the commandments were specifically tooled for human need as an expression of the law of love. Jesus referred to it many times and even said, all the law and the prophets hang on. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, and neighbor as yourself. Yes? Um, to me, these first two pictures are very closely linked. And when people think of the law being imposed, they're confused maybe without even meaning to because they think about the actual physical tablets of stone coming down. Right. And to me, that's related to the second issue, which is what, what is the law and, and is, is the actual Ten Commandments a reflection or, or how close is that is to the, the real law or whatever. As parents with kids, you tell, your, you tell your child, behave, be good, company's coming over. No, you, you get specific. You say, do not pick your nose, do not pull up the table, do not turn around while you're eating. You give them lots of details because they, at their stage, need to hear all the specific things as we do in our immaturity. We need to understand. No, don't just love. Let me tell you what love looks like. Here's some examples. 
Stay true to your wife. Be, be honest. Don't take other people's stuff when you're playing in the sandbox with them. God had to do that with us. Right. And yes, Vera, if, if you want to get pointed about it, you have to give reflection. Because it's only ten little examples of all the whole picture of what God wants us to do to have love um, be the ruling law in our lives. And the, and the new covenant, he's going to put the law where? In the heart and mind. Let's see what Timothy, Paul says to Timothy about the law, the written law. He says, we know the law is good if a man uses it properly. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses, starting verse 8. We also know that the law is not made for good men, but for lawbreakers and rebels and the ungodly and sinful, the unholy, the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, for perverts and slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Now, what does that sound like he's talking about? Which law? Murder, adultery, which law? Ten Commandments. It's not for the righteous. It is for the lawbreakers. Why? What's its purpose? Why was it given? What does it say in Romans? That the law was given so that sin might, in the old King James, abound, so that sin could be seen more clearly, so we could understand it, we could see it. Why? Because we were in darkness. Darkness covered the earth, gross darkness to people. We needed a diagnostic instrument. If you have something wrong with you, and you go to the doctor and he puts you in an MRI scanner, what's the MRI scanner do? It exposes the defect or the problem. It looks inward. The law is to look inward to the character and expose defect, expose sin. Does the, does the MRI cure you? Does the Ten Commandments cure us? Not at all. They were a diagnostic instrument to lead us back, like a schoolmaster, to our heavenly physician who will cure us and heals. But to convict us, hey, we're sick, and we're dying, and we're terminal, and if you don't get back with the heavenly physician, you're going to die. Yes? Why Paul said that he didn't understand what covenant was until he looked at the law. And the Ten law, and he saw, I'm a covenant. Yep. I need help. I need a savior. Exactly. So let's look at some other some other thoughts here. This is out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 364. If man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham, there'd have been no necessity for the ordinance of circumcision. And if the descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant of which circumcision was a sign, they would, nev- they would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary for them to suffer a life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved upon tablets of stone. And had the people practiced the principles of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need for the additional directions given to Moses. Hmm. Do we see a a progression of God meeting us where we are, continuing to add laws and laws and laws to help us in our need? This is out of Thoughts on the Mount of Blessings, page 109. But in heaven, service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah's, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening to something unthought of. In their ministry, the angels were not as servants, but as sons. There is perfect unity between them and their creator. Obedience to them is no drudgery. Wow. You mean they didn't have some posting on the wall like we have in so many buildings around America, the Ten Commandments posted somewhere? No, they didn't. Or this one. This is uh, where in Galatians, Paul says that the law was added. And there's a great debate in our church. Well, that was the ceremonial law, some said. No, that was the moral law of the Ten Commandments, others said. Back and forth, back and forth. First Selected Messages, page 233. I am asked concerning the law in Galatians. What law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? I answer, both the ceremonial law and the moral code of the Ten Commandments. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. In this scripture, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle, is speaking especially of the moral law. The Ten Commandments were added. Why? Because we needed them. Now, the great law of love was not added. It was eternal, pre-existent, never created. We've already gone over that. The evidence for that. But the form it took of the Ten Commandments was a special distillation added for our need. What about the next allegation? Forgiveness. Do we teach that mankind can be saved without God forgiving? No. 
That is so absurd on the surface that it almost doesn't even merit discussion. No, mankind could not be saved or experience salvation without God forgiving. There's no question. If God was unforgiving, I refuse to forgive. Is there any hope for any of us? No. It's absurd. Of course God forgives. Do we teach that sinners do not need forgiveness? So God is forgiving, but maybe we teach we don't need it. Do, do we teach we don't need forgiveness? No. We, of course, need God's forgiveness. Yes, exactly. We've never taken that position. But do we teach that God's forgiveness from his throne alone is enough? No. We need restoration, recreation, healing, you know, regeneration, the law written on the heart and mind. Forgiveness without restoration doesn't do us any good. Well, it can be used in that way. In the Eastern mind, it, it would be thought of that way. Forgiveness is the entire process of reconciliation and restoration. Absolutely. That's well, one thing you consistently taught us, that forgiveness is not easy. That's right. But in the Western mind, we often think about forgiveness and repentance combined together it, it equals reconciliation. And we separate. We break that down. I've been offended. I need to forgive. I've forgiven the guy who's offended me, but he's still trying to kill me. We can't reconcile, can we? Even though I'm forgiving, he's still wanting to kill me. We're not reconciled. Uh, I've, I've, I've done harm to somebody, and I'm repentant. But he's unforgiving. He won't forgive me. Can we reconcile? No. So in our Western thinking, we usually see it like this. This is innate in our relationships. And so God's heart is always forgiving, of course. And we need his forgiveness. We couldn't be saved. But we also need more than just legal forgiveness. And example... Jesus, when they lowered the man through the roof, broke up the roof, lowered the guy through, the guy's paralyzed. Before Jesus healed him, what did he say? So that you might know that the Son of Man hath authority on the earth to do something. Forgive sins. Take up your bed and walk. Did Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? On the cross, what did Jesus say in regard to those who were crucifying him? Did Jesus forgive those, the one with the authority to do it, who were crucifying him? Yes. Did that mean at that moment they were now saved? No. Ah, we need more than forgiveness, don't we? We need to accept the forgiveness into our heart that transforms us, opens us back to a trust relationship with God. As we trust him, then the Holy Spirit comes in and transforms us and brings us back into harmony with God. Without that working of the Holy Spirit in the heart, God's forgiveness from heaven doesn't do us as individuals any good, does it? No. Called repentance, which was alleged against us that, that our repentance would be works theology. Is repentance works theology? No. We'll come to the works theology in a minute. Salvation, by the way, according to Scripture, there's lots of text on the notes today. Salvation means what? Healing. Healing. You know, the word that we get in English for, for salvation is, is the same root we get salve from, like an eye salve. Or salvage, when you salvage something, salvation, salve. It all means to restore, to, to, to heal. In the Greek, in the New Testament, it says, you shall call his name Emmanuel, for she, he shall save his people from their sins. The Greek word there is sozo. It means to heal. If you've been bitten by a rattlesnake, and you have the poison running through your veins, and, and you go to the ER and you say to the doc, doctor, please save me. Okay, I forgive you for playing with rattlesnakes. Is that what you want? Or to save me more than just forgiveness? It means healing, restoration. So the scriptures... Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is forgiven. No, until he's born again. Ezekiel, chapter 18, 31 and 32. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and right spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Or Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove the heart, from them the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Or Deuteronomy 10, 16, 36, and Romans 2, 29, all say the same things. A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not the written code. Or Psalms 51, 10. Create me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Or Hebrews 8, 10. The covenant I will make of the house of Israel after that time declares the Lord, I will put my law on their minds and write them on their hearts. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or 2 Corinthians 5.17. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Is it more than just legal forgiveness that we need? Yes. How do you think that the big concern at the basis of the allegation about the commandments is the concern about the Seventh-day Sabbath? No. No, 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 no. He said it this repeatedly in his allegations were that we teach moral influence theory. It has to do with the reason why Christ had to die. That's, that's the, the real basis, and it has to do with misunderstanding God's law. This is the real basis for it. But sometimes I think when people are concerned about people saying the law is the law of love, that they're going to group themselves with a bunch of non-Sabbath keepers, and they're, because who also believe that the law is the law of God's love, and that that will negate the importance of the Seventh-day Sabbath. And that's... I think some people may fall into that, but I don't think this, was his guy, this guy's concern, because we have never done anything but promote the holiness of the Sabbath, have we? It was never an allegation. So no, but that, that, I think some people have that concern. And yes? This could be the, the work of someone who's going to tell us of uh, the commitment of this class. Well, the, it, it makes a difference in our lives. We can't experience transformation, the healing, the renewal, if we remain in fear of God. See, fear causes us to put barriers up in our heart. It's trust in Him that opens the heart for the regenerating power to bring the healing. Lies about God are what cause the fear. And so we have to remove the lies with the truth. You know the truth, the truth will set you free. Then we're one to trust. Then we experience indwelling the spirit that transforms us. So these types of things are all about promoting distortions about God. Do we teach a salvation by works theology in here? Yes. You mentioned the term legal forgiveness. I'm a little bit confused by what that means. I don't see God's forgiveness as legal. Yeah, but that's his position. See, remember, we have two laws. Two, two ways of seeing the law. Our way is, it emanates from God. It's his, it's his nature. It's his character. He's love. Everything's designed to run on it. Other way, God imposed the law, and he requires his, his, his creation to adhere to it. If you break it, well, as the imposer of law, he has to impose just penalties. The minimum penalty is death. So he has to execute breakers of the law, but he loves us. So he sent his son, executed his son in our place. We can accept payment. We accept payment. We can have legal pardon by our name. This is traditional penal substitution theology based on a misunderstanding of God's law, which leads down a path where we have an arbitrary God who enforces penalties upon his creatures, a God who executed his son. Read um, our own book, 27 Fundamental Beliefs, page 111, where one of our theologians expounds on this and says that the death of Christ was a moral and legal necessity, that God had to bring sin to judgment and execute judgment upon sin. In this execution... The Son of God took man's place according to God's will. Did God execute his son at the cross? No. What, what inspiration says that? Show me inspiration. My God, my God, why are you executing me? Why are you killing me? There's no inspiration that God executed his son, none at all. About Genesis 3.15. What does it say? How bruise his head his heels. The heels of Christ is Satan. It doesn't say he will bruise Christ's heel says, Satan will bruise Christ's heel. I will crush his head and the serpent will bruise your heel. Wasn't God bruising the heel of Christ? It was sin and the serpents that was bruising the heel of Christ. But but in so doing, would crush the serpent's head. Go back and check it. See, we have this idea that God had to execute his son. It's not there. Where this comes from historically, by the way, comes from the pagan infection of Christianity um, through the Dark Ages. When the church became pagan, and then the Dark Ages, we have an appeasement mentality where God's anger and wrath has to be appeased, and now we have Jesus and the, and the Mary and all the saints pleading to God so he won't be mad at us. And now we've, we've you know, reformed from much of that, the Reformation, but we've kept this little core in there where God still needs appeasement, but he's appeased by his son's blood. Rather than what the scripture says, God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. The fullness of God dwelt in Christ Bodily. Now, if God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself, or if what Jesus said, I do nothing of myself, I only do what the Father instructs me, or the words that I speak are not my own, they're the Father's words. If this is the Father in living flesh, what sense does it make that he's doing something to appease himself? None. It is not about appeasement. It is about restoring the very principles of life back into the creation that is dying in a terminal condition. So what about this works thing? We read these texts last week, so I won't give them all again. They're in last week's notes and this week's notes. I'll just give, give one of them. This is from Our High Calling, page 310. 
There are two grand forces at work in the salvation of the human soul. It requires the cooperation of man with divine agencies, divine influences, and a strong, living, working faith. It is in this way that the human agent can become a laborer together with God. The Lord does not sanction in any one of us a blind, stupid credulity. He does not dishonor the human understanding. But far from this, he calls for the human will to be brought into connection with the divine will. He calls for the ingenuity of the human mind, the tact, the skill, to be strenuously exercised in searching out the truths as it is in Jesus. Ye are laborers together with God. And she goes on to say this repeatedly, and so does the scriptures, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not you that work, but Christ that works in you. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. What does a yoke do? It hooks two people together. Or, or, so, so we're yoked together with Christ. So how I see the balance, the remedy for our sinful condition was achieved fully by Christ with no human effort or addition from us. We can do nothing or add nothing to what Christ has achieved for us. However, we have the choice to receive what he's done for us. And as we make that choice, there's a supernatural transformation comes over the character. Our desires, motives, and attitudes change, and we daily then invest our will and our energy in cooperation for transformation of our lives. Yes? No? Penalty for sin. Is there a penalty for sin? We were accused of saying that there's no penalty for sin. Is there? What is the penalty for sin? Death. Why? Why is there a penalty for sin? Is there a penalty for tying a plastic bag over your head and keeping it there? Why? Yes, absolutely. It's out of harmony with the foundational principles of life. We've read those texts that life is founded upon the law of love. Deviations result in death. Genesis 2.17, but if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. That was Romans 6.23 and James 1.15. So the penalty, is it sleep in the grave? No. Suffering in hell for alternity? No. Torture at God's hands. No. Execution at God's hands. No. See, those who teach that, this infliction, this is Satan talking. Guys, I never said God isn't powerful. I have always said God is powerful. He created everything. The problem is he's not good. If he'd just get a little self-control, if he'd restrain himself, if he wouldn't use his power to kill us, we could live forever in our sin because there's nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God. That's Satan's allegation. It's a lie. You see, the, the, the penal model has the source of death coming from God, not from sin. And people become more afraid of God, who's trying to save them, than sin, which is killing them. Do you see the distortion? And so what we do is we create all these theological ideas to protect us from God and his anger and his wrath, rather than to be healed and restored from sin, which is severing our connection with God. So shouldn't we be careful when we use that word punishment? Yes. Because yeah, the Bible says the wages, the wage is something that you earn. That's right. It's a consequence if you step off a 10-foot wall and fall. That's exactly right. Consequence, not a punishment. So we do not teach there's not a punishment or penalty. If you want to use the word penalty. Okay? There is. It's eternal death. Does it, does it cost God and Christ? Did they have to pay an infinite price to redeem mankind? Absolutely yes. Why? Because God demanded a blood payment so God would be willing to forgive or God would no longer be angry or God would no longer kill us. Is that the problem? When man fell into sin, who got changed by mankind's sin? Did mankind get changed in some way, deviating from God's design? Or did mankind's sin change God's attitude towards mankind? You see, the traditional model has Christ doing something to change God from angry and wrathful or punitive or punishing into forgiving. No, God didn't need changing. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare a son but gave him up. How will he not also along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? He's at the Father's right hand and is also, in addition to the Father, interceding for us. They're in unity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, unified. And so we don't have, but did it cost them a lot? Sure it did. An infinite 
dissension, if you will, into human form. But not just human form as Adam took it. He took upon himself our human form that had been marred and damaged by sin, tempted in every way just like we are. He was, his comeliness was deformed beyond all men, it says in Scripture. He was beaten and abused. Yes, did it cost him a lot? Sure it did. Absolutely. Yes, his humanity was without sin. But he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. Exactly right. He suffered under the weight of sin, but was without sin. Was Christ's death necessary in order for mankind to be saved? Absolutely yes. We could not be saved without Christ's victorious life, death, and resurrection. So then the allegation of moral influence theory, which is really the heart of the allegation, uh, other than the roots of the law, which is misunderstood. Do we teach that in this class? No. no, we do not teach that in this class at all. In fact, we've pointed out numerous times the deficiencies in this. But let me give you a quick example. Let's say you have bacterial endocarditis, which is an infection of the inside of your heart. This is a terminal condition. Without some remedy, the heart will start flicking off little pieces of infection and cause strokes, or the valves will be eaten away and you'll go into heart failure and die. Terminal condition. Let's say you've got this terminal condition. You're not dead yet, but you're, you're, you're not in good shape either. Somebody comes to you and tells you that they have a remedy that will cure you, and they want to inject this substance into you. And the person who tells you this name is Osama bin Laden. And you're an American, an infidel, Christian American. Would you let Osama inject you if you had the choice? Because you don't trust him. Element number one of what Christ had to do, remember, Satan lied about God. He broke trust. We don't trust God. We see all these lies about him. So number one, Christ did have to reveal truth in order to destroy the lies to win us back to trust. But let's say you have a loving father who's a physician, and you, you absolutely trust your father implicitly, but your father has no remedy to bacterial endocarditis. Will your trust in your father get you well without remedy? No. That is the moral influence theory. Moral influence theory teaches that God, that Christ restore trust, but there is no provision for remedy for our condition. We're still in a terminal condition. It's deficient, it's ineffective, it's wrong. Moral influence theory. Christ did more than just reveal truth. He did. He absolutely revealed truth. Are anybody going to argue that? No. He's revealed the truth. Well, Father, in John chapter 17, Father, I've finished the work you've given me to do. I've made you known unto men. So he reveals truth. To win us to trust, but he did more than that. What did Christ do beyond revealing truth? Scripture tells us three things. One, Hebrews chapter 2, 14, he took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Second Timothy 1, 9, that by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. And first John 3, 8, that by his death he destroyed the devil's work. Now think these things through. The devil's power. First, first one, Hebrews 2.14. Destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. The devil holds the power of death. What's the power? You see, John 17.3, life eternal is knowing God. So if knowing God equals eternal life, what does eternal death equal? Not knowing God. So Satan's power, the lies that he tells about God, that we believe, that keep us from knowing him. So Satan is the father of? Lies. So, so Christ came to reveal the truth to destroy the devil and his power, the power of lies that sever us from God. That's one element. But the Bible gives us two more. He came to destroy death. Second Timothy 1, 9 and 10. That by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. How do we understand that? What is the basis for life in God's universe? Perfect harmony with the law of love. It's the basis of life. That's how God designed it to run. All those texts we quoted, we give more. If that's the basis of life, what would be the basis of death? Selfishness. Selfishness is Satan's law. This law of sin and death the Bible talks about, which is the opposite of love. Christ came to destroy death and bring life and immortality to light. How did he do that? Isaiah says he took our iniquities or our infirmities upon himself. How did he do that? Well, Adam was created out of the dust of the earth. God breathed those nostrils, breath of life, perfect sinless being, Eve taken from his side. Did Christ's humanity come into the world like that? No. You and I, it says in Psalms 51, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, sinful mom, sinful dad. Did Jesus' humanity come into the world that way? 
No. Jesus is not exactly like Adam, and he's not exactly like us. He's unique. He came into the world, Galatians 4.4. He was born of a woman under law, the law of sin and death. He was born of this the sinful mother, Mary. But who's his father? God. So in Christ Jesus now, we have the two antagonistic principles warring it out. God's perfect law of love is warring against Satan's law of survival the fittest, watch out for me, self-centeredness. And as soon as he's baptized by the Spirit, he goes to destroy Satan and Satan's power and Satan's work. He's taken immediately to the desert by the Spirit for the purpose of confronting and overcoming the devil in the human brain. Remember, this is not divinity doing this. Why do we know? Because it says in James chapter 1 that God cannot be tempted. Was Jesus tempted? Yes. Divinity was not tempted there. It was his humanity that was being tempted, and he overcame in his human brain, in his humanity, with perfect love and trust in his Father, which none of us have done. Now, it says in Hebrews that he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And in James 1, it tells us that we are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. Are both of those inspired and true? Was he tempted every way like us? Are we tempted by our own desires? Did Jesus have human desire that tempted him from inside himself? In Gethsemane, did he have powerful human emotions that was tempting him to not go through the cross? If he followed his emotions, who would he have saved? Okay? Was that sin? Did he be tempted? No, he was tempted every yet without sin. He never sinned. He is sinless. But notice what happened. The two antagonistic principles. Love God, love, other-centered giving, fighting with desire to act in self-interest. In Christ Jesus, they are warring it out in his human brain. And at every time the temptation comes, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. Christ says, no one can take my life. I will give it freely. And he overcomes this temptation with perfect other-centered love. And this is why he had to die. If at any, way, at any point along death's approach, if Christ exercises his power and stops death from taking him, who did he save? Himself. himself. That's right. And love doesn't win. Selfishness wins. But when he gives himself perfectly in love, he restores in humanity, in his own humanity that he took upon himself, he destroyed the principles that bring death and rewrote God's perfect law of love into the human being by his own powerful choices. And thus it says in Hebrews 5.8, once he is made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who will trust him or obey him. So he destroyed death. And brought life. And this is why the grave couldn't hold him. Because as soon as he perfectly restored the law of love in his humanity, there was no reason for death to hold him. Life, it says in Psalms 19, that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord, the law of love is the law of life. Life, the death, death could no longer hold him. And then it destroys Satan's work. And what is Satan's work? This is out of Lift Him Up, page 48. The life of Christ is to be revealed in humanity. Man was the crowning act of creation of God, made in the image of God, and designed to be a counterpart of God. But Satan has labored. What's another word for labored? Worked. Because John, 1 John 3, 8 says he come to destroy Satan's work. But Satan has labored to obliterate the image of God in man and to imprint upon him his own image. Has Satan worked to destroy God's image in us and put Satan's image in us? Did Christ's life, death, and perfect uh, uh, accomplishments destroy that work? Yes. God's perfect law and character are now restored within the human species in the person of Jesus Christ. And each one of us, by connecting with Jesus Christ, can receive, through the work of the Holy Spirit, all that Christ achieved, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. You see, two complete models. One is a restoration, healing, regeneration, creation model. Another is a a model that gives false security. Hey, I've had my payment made. I've had legal pardon stamped by my book. No regeneration, no recreation. We'll continue on living. But you know what? Doesn't matter. I got my, got my legal pardon. It's two different models based on two different understandings of God's law. What about mediation? Christ is our mediator? Yes. Which way do you have him facing? Pleading to God on our behalf? Or the God's envoy, ambassador, representative from God to man? Which way do you have it? Jesus said in John 16, 
I will not pray the Father for you, for the Father loves you himself. Jesus' words. Doesn't have to. Because God already loves you. I don't have to pray to him for you. What he says. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. This is the other fourth thing that Jesus' death accomplished. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Remember, God is dwelling in him. This is God doing this through Jesus Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Through Christ Jesus, not only was humanity reconciled to God, but the unfallen universe was reconciled. Heavenly things, according to scripture. Ellen White goes on to say, Every world throughout immensity engages in the care and support of the Father and the Son, and this care is constantly exercised for fallen humanity. Christ is mediating in behalf of man, and the order of unseen worlds also is preserved by his mediatorial work. That is, Review and Herald, January 11, 1881. So we have some rethinking to do about what mediation means. Judgment, don't have time to go into judgment, guys, but... but um, <clears throat> It's in the notes, and there's a long description of judgment and bottom line. Who's being judged right now? Fear God and give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come. God is being judged. God has been accused of being someone we cannot trust. And if you judge God in your heart to be trustworthy and you open your heart to him, will that determine what happens to you? If you judge God to be untrustworthy and you don't trust him, will that determine what happens to you? Yes. yes. So our eternal destiny is wrapped up in whether we trust God or not. And all the scriptures in inspired record are here. There are lots of scriptures that, that people will quote, and they're in the notes, about where God says, I judged your fathers, I will judge, and so forth and so on. The question, does God's judgment in the end determine our destiny? No. no. It only confirms the choices we've taken. Example of God's judgment in scripture, Hosea 14, 7, 4, 17. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. That's a judgment. God is judged. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. Did God's judgment cause Ephraim to be joined to his idols? No. No. Understand, God's judgment is just merely the final diagnosis of our condition. Either reconciled to him or completely incurable. And I go on to give the quotes in here. Here's one of the Great Controversy 543. Like the waters of the great flood, the fires of the great day declare the verdict. Verdict is a judgment, right? That the wicked are incurable. Does the verdict from God that they're incurable make them incurable? No. No. See, we have this other thing in our mind, and we need to free ourselves from it. At the beginning, I was concerned about this letter, but I'm really grateful for the opportunity that this has given me to summarize something that's made this much clearer for me than probably anything else we've ever Thank you. I don't know if you all heard him. He was concerned about the letter, but now he's thankful because it allowed us to summarize and make clear things in a more clear way that might not have happened. But the question for you, after we've gone through this, we've looked at the allegations, we've looked at the evidence, how do we have peace with someone who takes a position like that and won't even listen to the evidence. How do we have peace? Just pray for them. Pray for them. But we can't have peace. Should we have peace with those who reject the truth? No. No. I think it's a very subdued, seductive thought to think that we can have as much time as we ever could use to finally come to the point where we're in harmony with God on our own. You know, by our own thinking and by our choices and that sort of thing. The regenerating power of the Holy Spirit working in us, yes. The point is that a lot of people think, well, at some point, God is just going to forensically say, or, or you know, in a, in a judgment, in His judgment, say, well, okay, you're, you're okay anyway, and so we're just going to ignore the stuff that you never conquered yet. And that, there's a huge danger in that. That's why you'll always have some explaining to do, so to speak, between these two theories. Well, hopefully you guys will be prepared when such allegations come. We don't have to fear allegations. The truth loses nothing by investigation. I am open to answer questions and dig into the scriptures and the inspired record at any time. And we all should remain that way. But people don't do this. They just go around, around and behind the scenes rather than actually saying, let's dig together and search the word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it saddens us to think that here we are in your house working 
with your spirit to come to know you more fully, longing for the day that, that all will be restored at one minute, unity, oneness, harmony, as they had in the upper room the day the, of Pentecost. Yet here in our own fellowship, we, we have this disunity, this, these allegations made, yet minds are not always open to hear. We ask that your spirit will come and empower us to, to be loving and gracious and patient, yet also be truthful as we move forward in your truth, knowing you more fully. And Lord, bring your sword, your sword of truth. Not, the, not this peace that, that conforms, but the sword of truth that will cut away, cut us away from the world and the distortions about you and establish us in the fullness of your glory. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.